you know, we live in um, tenuous economic times, and I think, um, uh, you know, housing prices are plummeting. I was in Arizona this week, and Arizona is leading the nation in bankruptcies, and California is leading in the nation in uh, foreclosures, and um, I believe and the dollar's low. Um, the barrel of crude oil has exceeded $100. A couple of years ago, they said they would not reach $40. It's gone way beyond that. We're about to approach upon $4 a gallon for gasoline soon. We live in tenuous economic times. And and I think um, my belief is if you don't believe recession is here, um, people are in denial. It's here full-fledged. Because if you're in denial, you'll be at the end and saying, hey, it's come and gone. Nothing's happened. A lot has happened and a lot will happen. And that's the thing, too. You know, many people, all of us, we have, we try to be wise with our money, wise with our finances. And, uh, and this won't be any surprise to you. This morning, I will share with you probably the greatest insider trading tip um, anyone will ever give you. It is that be careful of the U.S. dollar. Uh, be careful of the euro. Even the gold, which it has at its historical high. Um, but one day, this won't be a surprise to you, that it all one day will be worthless. You know, after the Civil War, when war was over, South lost, those with the Confederate currency were left with nothing. And that's the um, same feeling or same result that we'll all experience if we continue to invest in this world. Because every fund, every market will not compare to the kingdom fund that we are to invest in. Because the kingdom fund will be the bullish as it gets. It is the only bullish thing that will get in the in the long run. And I love what Jim Elliot said. It says, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep and gain what he cannot lose. That's what's happened to us and what should that's the view that we ought to have. And it's a particularly tough sermon this morning because of society we live in. Because I think there's much to be gained for all of us, yet we fight for things that we can't keep. So much of our energy, so much of our time, efforts are put into the things that we will not be able to keep one day. You know, I taught on various topics, and um, <clears throat> I can't remember a sermon that um, probably had more teaching on the teacher than the hearer. And... Um, uh, it rebuked me tremendously this week. But at the same time, as difficult as it is, we have to consider the entire counsel of God. At Cornerstone, since the beginning, we tried to refrain ourselves from buffet mentality approach to the Bible. That we take certain things out of the Bible that we like, or were acceptable to us, or, or comfortable to us, and leave out the things that may not be so easy to listen to or easy to obey. Things that are difficult. And giving is one of those things, and it's particularly sacrificial giving. Therefore, I'm convicted by Scripture to give you the entire counsel of 
the Bible, of God's Word, because I believe the topic of giving regarding um, in regards to possessions, money, or, or sinfulness, or selfishness, or pride, is not addendum to the Bible, or Christianity, or to our God. I believe it is at the heart of our spiritual walk, maybe the most difficult obstacle in our spiritual walk. So I, pon- I ponder upon what, why is this so difficult? Why is it so uncomfortable to talk about this topic in the church? And as a church, I think um, in from the pulpit, perhaps I've talked to the pastors about this, that we stood here with, a, with false humility before you for nine plus years, thinking that, that God will take care of everything. But in a way, we have done this church injustice if we continue this way from the approach that we had in the last nine and a half years. Is to leave this out. Because it's in the Holy Scriptures that we must teach as being part of the entire counsel of God. And with that approach, I come before you today desiring to learn, to grow, and no longer continue to operate with don't ask, don't teach type of policy. Because even in our small groups, even in our flock groups, even in maybe individual counseling sessions, I'm not asking you to do any, change anything differently, but do we ever ask, I know this is difficult, maybe, but this is the way God will change us in the future. Just ask the question, how was your giving this week? How was your giving this month? How was your giving this year? Right? That's part of our Christian walk. And it was so much part of the first century Christian walk that is so foreign to us. In this way, in, it was so radical the way people gave in the first century Christians when they first came to the Lord, as opposed to today. I think particularly because where we live, our demographics, our economic situations, they're so vastly different from early Christians, it, that becomes more difficult. And I hope, my prayer is that over the last nine and a half years, God has allowed us to turn a paradigm shift, if the tipping point, if you will. God has allowed us to, the, the pendulum to swing in the area of taking care of orphans in this church. And I pray that the next nine and a half years, maybe ten years, maybe beyond, however long it takes, in this area of our Christian walk, God would also allow us to tip the other way. That where we are transformed, and there's a paradigm shift in view, in view of giving in our lives and in the lives of this church. You know, we are, you may correlate, because we are about to embark upon our first ever Cornerstone Capital, capital Campaign. But the goal of the sermon is not for you, so that you would give or more that you would give more, more, more often. The goal of even the capital campaign and this sermon is so that we would examine our hearts in regards to possessions, materialism, role of the church in our lives, role of the Word of God in terms of our giving and how that exists in our lives. The aim is the greater spiritual maturity for all of us, 
greater holiness for all of us, particularly in this area of, of our Christian walk. In a way, it's, just, it's a stewardship issue. Stewardship that will ultimately res, uh, result in God being glorified in our midst. Now, my prayer is that, that we would mature. We would mature through this process. And you say, you know, wow, what a bad time. What a horrible time. Timing is just awful. You know, with, again, tenuous economic circumstances, situations, people losing jo- jobs. But I say, there's no better time. And we'll see in Second Corinthians 8, the example of people who are in much worse economic times, yet relative, even relatively so, gave abundantly. I think, therefore, it's perfect time. Because anybody, it's easier to give when you have a lot. Right? I think it's harder to give when you have little. Therefore, for our spiritual well-being, it's the best of times. It's the best of times. As President Kennedy challenged the nation in 1960 to put a man on the moon by the end of the decade, it was the last great frontier this country was going to embark upon. Perhaps this is the last great frontier and most difficult frontier for us to examine our hearts the frontier, the recess of our corner of our hearts, where it's so much difficult to deal with what we have and to give and deal with that in our hearts. And I think it will be difficult, but it will be good. So much of this is so counterculture. So today, the question on how we view money, giving, and how it affects us spiritually and I think it would be a great thing for us to grow, which, in the flip side, could corrupt so many people. The Bible tells us money reveals a lot about the person's heart. Luke 12.34 says, Where your treasure is, your heart will be also. You know, Bible clearly does not forbid possession of money or having even a lot of money. What the Bible forbids in First Timothy 6 is that it forbids the love of money. Because we cannot serve two gods. As we study this morning, we will see that giving is not dependent on one's circumstances, one's age, point of life, or career's um, position, or income bracket, or one's financial strength. But it's where our heart is. So just to give you a background, um, the two texts, Mark 12 and 2 Corinthians 8. Again, one of the most striking things about the Bible, or particularly the characteristics of early Christians, is that they shared all they owned And they liquidated their possessions to give to one another and give to those who are particularly in need. Second, uh, Acts 2, 44 and 45 says, All those who had believed were together and had all things in common. They began selling their property, possessions, and were sharing with all as anyone might have need. They sold everything when they didn't have anything. And then Paul recognized the need of people. Right before that passage, in Acts 4, 20, uh, 32, 
and congregation of those who believed were one heart, one soul, and not one of them claimed that anything belonged to them was his own. Verse 34. At very, the very beginning, in the early times, there were not needy person among them. For all who were owners of land or houses would sell them and bring the proceeds in the sale and lay them at the feet of the apostles. And they would distribute them to this, each those who have needed. That was a radical part of the first Christian, the first century Christian life that we see in Second Corinthians 8. We'll study that true model, true biblical model of giving is sacrificial giving. So the question is, what is sacrificial giving? Do you know that average American teenager's budget through various means is about $1,500 a year, average teenager's budget? You know, I went to China. Every Chinese factory worker makes about $150 U.S. dollars per month. $150. That's a little over $1,500. It's very little. They live on that. Then we see the Macedonian Christians in 2 Corinthians 8. You know, Paul, the, the Macedonian Christians, this area was made up of uh, church at Philippi, Berea, and Thessalonica. You see... Philippians and First uh, and Second Thessalonians, there's, Paul doesn't write anything about dealing with riches, dealing with money, because these people didn't have very much money. But yet, Paul points them out and commending them as they were great givers. They were impoverished people. You know, Rome, Roman Empire was wealthy. No, Rome was wealthy, but Roman Empire was not well wealthy. The Macedonians were crippled by taxes from Rome. They were they endured three civil wars. Economic resources, natural resources were sucked out of them. And their economy was crumbling. Yet it was so bad of this region of Roman Empire. Caesar actually, as ruthless as he was, he gave tax relief to this area. And there's only, only one, only region known during the Roman Empire that tax relief was given. And verse 2 says, that in great ordeal and in affliction they did this. And they said, in a great ordeal and affliction they gave abundance of joy and their deep poverty. So that's the picture. The true biblical giving, the sacrificial giving. So what is true sacrificial giving? If Bill Gates were a Christian, I don't know if he is or not, if he were a Christian, if he gives $100,000 or a quarter million dollars, is that sacrificial? But true sacrifice costs us something. You should even maybe hurt a little bit or a lot. Martin Luther said this, a religion that gives nothing, costs nothing, and suffers nothing is worth nothing. Sacrificial giving is a picture of someone giving beyond their ability. It also means giving their best. The first fruits, right? The first harvest to those in need, to the Lord. And Macedonians, Christians, 
consider this a privilege to support one another. They actually implored and begged to give to those in need. You know, one thing I'll say, I'll just kind of sidetrack here a little bit. Please allow me to do that. It's um, this on tithing. Okay. Now, John Piper wrote a sermon. I read a sermon today, uh, this week. It says, The generation that believed in tithing and tradition of tithing are in three places. They're in retirement homes, nursing homes, and cemeteries. Okay. This generation of believers no longer believe in tithing. Okay? Maybe the tithing, with the percentage-wise, maybe that may be true. But what his point he was making is, what is wrong with following or holding up Old Testament principle? Okay? We're not bound by it. No one is bound by that any longer. We're not serving a theocracy. But what is wrong with the Old Testament principle? And we'll see today that tithing, maybe even 10%, if you will, as a sacrificial giving goes, should be the, not the ceiling or not the goal, but should be the base of where we start. So let's talk about two reasons why giving is so hard. Two reasons why giving is so hard. One, because of our sin, our sin nature, our depravity, our pride, particularly our selfishness. Because of our sin nature, it's difficult to sacrifice, difficult to give. The sinful ingredients are unbelief, pride, insecurity, idolatry, and ultimately love of self, selfishness. concept of giving to others, to the church, Sacrificially is foreign to us. I'll tell you a story. Um, when I was in eighth grade, I played baseball about this time of the year. Eighth grade. I was on a great team. Undefeated. We defeated teams like 10, 12, 15 runs. Usually by the fourth inning, our coach would pull out all the starters that we would sit and kind of cruise the rest of the game. We went to the championship game undefeated. Undefeated. It was right here at Bell Elementary. This is why I chose this school. <laughs> it was right here, right out in the field. In the championship game, they were also undefeated. Here we go. We play seven inning, game is tied. In the eighth inning, they're at top, we're on the field. They had a tying, a go-ahead run on third with one out. This guy hits a blooper in the right field. I was playing second base. I grab it, I turn, I throw home. Nail the guy. I threw a strike. Went, Boom, nailed the guy. I'm on high, right? First, I was number two batter. Our leadoff guy gets a double in the top, um, bottom of the ninth, I think. Gets a t- double, no outs. I'm the second batter. I come to bat. Okay, I am hot. This is God leading me to win the championship. <laughs> Everything, the table is set. I get up. I looked at the coach. Coach gives me a sign. He asked me to bunt, to move the runner over. I go, are you kidding me? This is, you know, I have one of the highest batting averages on the team. This is mine. He's mine. He's tired. This guy's gone nine innings. He's prime for me to just take advantage of, right? So I step out of the box. I ask him to go over the sign again because I know you did some, it was a mistake, right? So he gives me the sign. 
it was to bunt again, to sacrifice so that we would move the runner over and next third or fourth batters would come up and maybe win the game. Well, I was on a bot to not comply at this point. It was very difficult. I bunted, and uh, not to boast or anything, it was a fabulous bunt from what I was told. <laughs> because it was, uh, they got it, and he tried to throw me out at first. He hesitated. He threw me out. He, he threw. This is when I was fast. I, I beat the throw, and our guy, leadoff runner, he was crazy. He took off from second base and went home. And he, the first baseman threw home, and he was safe. So it was the game-winning hit anyway. So God had a sovereign. But when he, coach gave me that sign, it was really difficult for me to handle it. As an eighth grader, you think I'm full of pride now? I was self-confidence at a different level. But that's the picture of for many of us in terms of sacrifice. Sacrifice and giving is foreign to many of us. Because spending is always easier than giving. Because in our sinful state, when we spend, we usually spend it on ourselves. It benefits us. When we give, it benefits others. And this is where it's more difficult. Hudson Taylor said, The less I spend on myself and more I gave to others, the fuller of happiness and the blessings did my soul become. Martin Luther also said, there are three conversions necessary. Conversion of the heart, conversion of the mind, and conversion of the purse. And of these three, it may well be that we moderns find the conversion of the purse most difficult. Most difficult. Isaac Watts wrote the song, Survey the Wondrous Cross. The line goes, My riches I count but loss and pour my contempt on all my pride. I think that one of the greatest obstacles of giving is our pride. I think once our pride dies, as, as a correlation, as our pride dies, I think we'll be able to give more. What also stems from pride is greed. Greed. You know, we don't give so that we could attain from God. Our aim is to be able to give and find satisfaction in giving, knowing that that brings pleasure to God and contentment in life. Second reason why maybe giving is so hard is materialism or the, the dreaded disease, one of the most dreaded diseases in the world, affluenza. Right? Remember, money is not root of all evil. It's the love of money. In our generation, it's alarming to find that we rationalize our excesses, particularly in in areas we live. Our early church father, Tertullian, said, Can a man be poor if he's free from want, if he does not covet the belongings of others? If If he is rich in possession of God, rather if he is poor who possesses much but still craves more. I think to gauge, to see if a man is rich or poor is to gauge his cravings, how much he wants. This is why it's so deadly than cancer or AIDS. The mindset is getting more and more and more. It doesn't stop. It's an addict. 
the spiritual addict. You know, the world bombards us, right? In 1986, there were more high schools than shopping centers. In 2006, now there are twice as much shopping centers, little strip malls, than high schools in this country. The world bombards us with messages, you know. Commercials come on, says, use me, buy me, wear me, put me in your hair, all that kind of stuff. I am not tempted by that at all. But it works for some of you. Right? There's a, you know, active credit cards in this country, the Americans hold, has exceeded one billion cards. One billion. This pop, the population of this country, including children, it's less than, uh, it's right around 400 million, right? You take children out, so most people possess minimum two cards. Two points on lot cards, probably close to three. And they say, someone once said, you know, you go to California, you find earthquakes. You live in Florida, you'll have hurricanes. But if you live in the United States of America, you have materialism. You have greed. We see that. The riches, we hang on to those. Our riches. In Luke 12, we see the rich fool where greed that blinds him. That's what Proverbs 23, 5 says, Cast but a glance at riches, and they are gone. But they surely will sprout wings and fly off. It's a matter of time. Sometimes money is a true litmus test of our spiritual state, our spiritual status. John Wesley said this of materialism, Wherever true Christianity spreads, it must present a case of diligence and frugality in which in the natural course of things, must beget riches. The riches naturally beget pride, love of the world, and every temper that is destructive of Christianity. Now, if there's no way to prevent this, Christianity is inconsistent with itself, and of the consequences, it cannot stand. I think it's one of the greatest deceptions that our enemy uses against us is, brothers and sisters, Let's not be deceived by this. John D. Rockefeller, who had much, much in terms of money and possessions, he said, the poorest man I know is he who has nothing but money. He was talking about himself. I want to talk about one more area, materialism in the home, especially in light of our children for parents here in our midst. It's one thing to provide for our children, but it's another thing to smother them with possessions. It's just an ingredient or just a makeup or setting ourselves, setting our children for self-centeredness and materialism. We are building materialists. We need to be careful of that. You know, children who grow up getting what all they wanted will ultimately those be adults who misuse credit, default on loans, become poor employees. We need to be able to train them and discipline with material goods. Randy Alcorn, in his book, Money, Possessions, and Attorneys, writes, parents who spoil their children out of love should realize that they are performing act of child abuse. 
This spiritual mistreatment results in much long-term personal and social damage as the worst physical abuse. You know, children can suffer if they're depraved of maybe food, just nurturing, caring by their parents. But normally they will not suffer from lack of material goods because they didn't have a few toys. Or even in our society, in our circumstances, you see when we go out here outside the parking lot in both fields, even organized sports, our parents, most of our parents didn't play organized sports they were okay. They had hard, good work ethics. Even maybe little girls' ballet classes or dance classes, music lessons. They don't have nice bicycles or skateboards, whatever it may be. I think we need to choose for them and help them to think more eternally with delayed gratification. I think they'll be thankful for you, to you for one day. You know, I grew up, my parents didn't have very much. You know, when I played sports, I told you, you know, it used to be, like, very difficult for me to go ask my parents to buy me paracletes or basketball shoes. Okay, after my eighth grade year, my eighth grade triumph, I was on freshman basketball team. We bought $30 worth, uh, $30 um, that's worth Adidas Top Tens, they were called. This is pre Jordan Air days, right? When you wore the short shorts before the three-point line and all that. I had a pair of basketball shoes. I thought these were the greatest, right? They were the greatest. I loved putting them on and playing. I left them in my locker. Next day I come, my locker's ripped open, my shoes gone. I was, like, devastated, right? And I, had, I couldn't ask. I told my mom, I couldn't ask my dad to buy me another pair of shoes, right? My dad, you know, he was a very frugal man. And uh, next morning, when I got up to go to school, he left a check for $30 to buy a pair of shoes so that I could play again. You know, But it was very difficult. And I'm thankful for them for raising me that way. That for Before I go and ask for a pair of cleats or a pair of basketball shoes, I would have to think. I would have to even pray sometimes that they would comply. <laughs> you know? So let's remember, parents, that we need to train our children to have the sermon and fight greed in their own hearts and teach them to share and to give to others, give to God. So let's go to our text this morning. Let's break it down. I'm going to give you three qualities of sacrificial giving. Second Corinthians 8, 1 through 9. I'm going to focus on one, verses 1, 2, and verse 9. So I'll read verses 1, 2, and 9. I'll read the whole thing. Now, brethren, we wish to make known to you the grace of God, which has been given in the churches of Macedonia, that in great deal ordeal of affliction, their abundance of joy and their deep poverty overflowed in wealth of their liberality. For I testify that according to their ability and beyond their ability, they gave their own, their own accord, begging us with much urge and favor of participation in support of the saints. And this... Not as we expected, but they first gave the themselves to the Lord and to us by the will of God. Titus would also complete in you in this gracious work as well. But as you abound in everything, in faith and utterance and knowledge and in all earnestness and in love, we inspired in you 
see that you abound in this gracious work also. I'm not speaking this as a command, but as a proving through the earnestness of others and the sincerity of your love also. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. You know, I'll just start out before I give you the three qualities. Okay? Is that the antidote to covetousness, materialism, affluenza, is to give. Okay. Giving is the only antidote to materialism and influenza. Because spending begets spending. It only will continue in our lives. So first sacrificial, first point, first quality in sacrificial giving is that it is a reflection of God's grace. Sacrificial giving is a reflection of God's grace. Verse 1, we wish to make known to you the grace of God which has been given in the church of Macedonia. Then verse 9, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet he came uh, poor for your sake. Again, giving is not dependent on one's age, one's career. As Christ is our model, grace was given to the Macedonian churches. The grace was, uh, this giving was prompted by God's grace and it was demonstration of Christian love. And John Calvin said, all men who do, who do not consider it gain to give, then nor do they ascribe to God's grace. If you understand God's grace, it is a result and is foregone conclusion. Giving is a byproduct of God's grace. As, so we correlate in a mathematical equation is that as more we understand God's grace, better givers we ought to be. So you go the other way. Less understanding we have God's grace, less of a giver we will be. Sacrificial giving is part of our sanctifying grace. It sanctifies us. It should be a reflexive reaction, a part of our lives, to be givers when we understand grace. Giving is a means of celebrating the goodness of God, generosity of God's grace. This is why 2 Corinthians 9.7, God loves a cheerful giver. Giving is not done out of fear, but love of God and out of reverence for God. The motivation here giving is grace in Christ. Paul does not employ guilt as a motive for giving. As the Macedonians gave to those brothers and sisters in Jerusalem, the churches in Jerusalem, it was not by any means normal, from especially from a modern-day standpoint, for modern-day believers like you and me. But they gave as a gratitude. And we see how radical the first-century Christians were because the grace that has been given to us is radical. It's overabundant. It's overwhelming. Therefore, it doesn't surprise me to look at 
the Macedonians, who were afflicted with so much pain, so much grief, especially economically, were able to give of themselves as a gratitude to Christ, understanding what was done. And they found it a joy. They found trust that God would take care of them. So the behavior of these Christians, the most devout Christians, we could say to even ourselves, the behavior, one of the greatest behaviors, most devout behaviors of those who are followers of Christ are the greatest givers. Not because of fear of man, not because they want to please anybody, but because they understand the sacrifice that was paid on the cross. Because our Lord set the ultimate example. Our Lord set the ultimate example of giving. And we're just following to be more Christ-like. As forgiveness is one of the greatest, godliest Christian traits, so is giving. Because His atoning sacrifice on Calvary was purely giving. As he emptied himself to take on human form, he lowered himself to the point of death, the death on a cross, to be propitiation for our sins, to become sin on our behalf. How much more giving can giving get? Giving is simply reciprocating God's grace to us. Karl Barth once wrote, Grace and gratitude belong together like heaven and earth. Grace evokes gratitude like voice and echo, gratitude flows, uh, follows grace like thunder following lightning. Second quality of sacrificial giving is it transcends, I touched upon this already, transcends circumstances, even poverty and affliction and trials. In verse 2 it says, that in great ordeal of affliction, their abundance of joy and their deep poverty overflowed in the wealth of their liberality. It transcends difficult circumstances. Although the economic conditions were crumbling, they gave. With slender means, they gave. With confidence in God, they gave. It shows you, it's not our financial situation or obligations, or lack of income, or any type of circumstances, it comes down to the lack of understanding of God's grace or lack of trust in God that prevents us from giving. We must control ourselves, and especially in the areas of spending first, as we consider giving. Because that's where the war is fought, right? I'll give you a good story of illustration of John Wesley, how he controlled himself as his, his life changed, yet his giving increased. He was a great 18th century evangelist who gave money to the church and to the poor. In his first year, his income was 30 pounds, and he found that he could live on 28 pounds, so he gave two away. For second year, his income doubled to 60 pounds. So how much did he give away? he still only used 28 pounds and gave away the 32. His third year, it went up again to 90 pounds. 
Then how did he give up? What did he give up? What did he give? 62 pounds. He only still lived on 28 pounds. Later part of his life, his income increased to 1,400 pounds a year. His spending never arose beyond 30 pounds. He gave away the rest. He was so baffled. The English tax commissioner was so baffled, they audited him. They investigated him. How does a man do this? How does a man do this? He came out clean. Over his lifetime, he gave more than 30,000 pounds when he died of 87, uh, age of 87. He didn't have a coin in his pocket when he died. He gave it all away. He didn't believe in giving away at the end. He gave it away during his lifetime. That's my prayer one day. I said, shared this with pillars one day. My prayer is that one or maybe even all of us give so much one day in our lifetime. I know that the IRS audit is a dreadful thing, but if we get audited, every single one of us get audited because of this, it's a glorious day. Praise God that you got audited. That you would call me one day, Bob, I got audited today. Because if they say it didn't make sense, I'd give so much. That's a glorious day. Because we gave so much to the contributions according to our income, like John Wesley, that it didn't make sense. And they would find us and audit us, would come out clean. Hope they don't find anything else. But but because of that, that's a glorious day. Last quality of a sacrificial giver is that sacrificial giving is about what we keep, not about what we give we all know this text, Mark 12, 41 through 44. And he sat down opposite of the treasury and watched people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people paid, they put large sums, and the poor widow came and put in two small copper coins. And he called his disciples to him and said, Truly, I say to you, this poor widow has put more than all of these who are contributing to the offering box. For they contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of the poverty, has put everything she has and all she lived on. As I said before, true sacrificial giving puts us in uncomfortable positions because true sacrificial giving, biblical giving, it costs us. It costs us. In totality, this woman didn't give much, but cost her everything. John Calvin writes of this widow, in her offering. It says, Whatever men offer to God ought to be estimated, not by its apparent value, but only by the feeling of the heart that the holy affection of that she has is more worthy of esteem than that of him who offers a hundred times more out of its abundance. This widow was humble, not superficial, as opposed to the other Jewish leaders. I see in God's sovereign plan, we see the Holy Scriptures Actually, Christ witnessed this, and Christ said this himself. He saw people were contributing. In light of that, she, he witnessed this widow's gift. The true gift, true sacrificial giving, is giving up what is most precious. Now we see what counts in God's eyes, in Christ's eyes, is not what we give, 
It's what we keep. God is more concerned. God does not look at what's in those offering baskets this morning. It's lit. God looks at what is left over in our bank accounts. That's what this text is saying. Because what she gave was nothing. It was nothing. But what she kept was also nothing. That's the measure of our giving. Measure of our giving is what we have left. Because what we have, we have left abundance, and it rebukes me as much as anybody else, is that because we keep so much. John Piper said this, true giving is not about what you give, but is more about what you keep. The question is, not how much should I give, but is rather, how much do I dare to keep? This, John Piper says, it is irrational for us to believe that giving 10% is where we start. That we see clearly in this text in Mark 12, this type of giving, godly giving, sacrificial, biblical giving, is not out of comfort and remainder, or convenience and remainder. It is what's at the heart. Because it's sacrificial, because it costs us something. It should hurt a little bit. We would have to tighten our belts a little bit. And that's good. That's good. Just some concluding thoughts and a few applications for you. Remember, let's not look at the Macedonians and the widow. The ultimate giver is Christ. Consider what he gave first before we considered the Macedonians and the widow. You know, we are all moved at times when we hear of missionaries sacrificing out in the mission field. We are moved so that we would even want to go. We were moved by their sacrifice, their labor, giving of their comfort for the sake of the gospel. And I hope one day we are moved by missionaries who are givers. Not in the physical places, but at the heart. Even right here in Cornerstone. That we have giving warriors in our midst. That they're sacrificial. And they gave. So that they could support the gospel work. They're giving servants. I have one of these days that that would be the case. That we would have in our midst people who really show the love of God. And I pray that God would grant all of us that grace. I have, you know, I've got this list. Um, I shortened it down and maybe added one more to Randy Alcorn's list. He has a list in his book, Money, Possession, and Eternity. As applications, I'll give you nine points quickly. First, give. Christians give. There are no exceptions. Number two, 
Give regularly. Get paid once a month, once a week. Give accordingly before you forget. Make it regular in your life. Make it deliberate. Make a commitment and follow it. Maybe you even have a family or a personal mission statement on giving. Change from the way we are doing things currently to take a little bit step forward, more like Christ, more like the widow, more like the Macedonians. Give cheerfully. God loves a cheerful giver. God takes delight in when we give cheerfully. Give worshipfully. It should be part of our worship. As the team led us in worship this morning in song, as we pray, giving is part of worship. Give it with the heart of worship. Give quietly, Mark 6, 1, so that we will not show the acts of righteousness to others. Give quietly. Give proportionally. Let's start at 10%. Give sacrificially knowing God's grace that is out of considering grace of God to us and giving accordingly. And lastly, let's raise givers for our parents, for those who are to be parents. Proverbs 22.6, teach a child the way he should go, that when he's old, he will not turn from it. Let's train them up. Let's train our children up, next generation of cornerstone believers, to be givers, greater givers than us. That's the aim. And lastly, you know, I know how many of you have seen that movie, Chariots of Fire. Eric Little said, I believe when God made me for a purpose, when I run, I feel God's pleasure. I don't know if that's quite biblical or not, but when we give, we need to learn God's pleasure. God loves a cheerful giver. Know that that brings a sweet aroma to God that is pleasing in His eyes when we live in a sacrificial way, when we give to Him sacrificially. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we give You praise for Your Word. We give You thanks for Your love toward us. Lord, as we make givers of ourselves, givers of us, I pray that You would teach us to realize daily the grace that has been given to us through Christ. And out of our response to the greatest gift that we receive, that you may raise generation of givers in this body. I pray that you will allow us, whatever the result may be, transform our hearts in this area of our lives in this church. In Jesus' name, amen.